The spring issue of Grazy Her is on sale this week, the 17th of September. Subscriptions are arriving into mailboxes across the country. Head into your local stockist to pick up a copy. Just a quick message that this episode has some language which isn't suitable for little ears and deals with the aftermath of a bushfire and mental ill health. If this brings anything up for you, you can speak with someone right now at Lifeline on 13 11 14. I just feel like we just did what we had to do. Like, shit happens. You just literally have to deal with whatever's thrown at you each day. And sometimes I think we did a good job and sometimes I think, oh my God, what were we thinking? But we're here now and I feel like we're finally getting somewhere, I guess, yeah. Hello and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories about rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Emily Herbert and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Georgia Machos, a mum and farmer from South Australia. What a rollercoaster Georgia has ridden. A series of unforeseen circumstances have thrown some serious curveballs at Georgia over the last decade. Her story ultimately one of survival and triumph through some pretty dark times. A defining moment in Georgia's life was in 2011, when her dad was tragically killed in a farming accident something that Georgia and her family continue to grapple with to this day. I was working up on a station at the time. So I was, um, I worked for Rice. So I would go out to different stations and look after people's kids for two weeks and then come back and then go again and come back. (laughs) And I wasn't overly happy in my job at the time because I wanted to be home more I wanted to be on the farm more um, and helping my dad so I guess for me there was like I wished I'd done something earlier I wish I had uh, actually done what I wanted to do which would have been been home on the farm and helping more but you can't change that I guess I was the only person who wasn't there Um, so I got a phone call from my mum in the morning saying that there'd been an accident. Basically, she didn't want to tell me. Well, he hadn't died. When she had rung me the first time, he hadn't died. But I just knew that that's what had happened. And I knew that she didn't want to tell me. And like I couldn't drive back from the station. I had to wait for someone else to come and take over from me before I came. So he died in the morning and I didn't get home until after lunch, like maybe two in the afternoon or something. And by then, there was millions of people at our house, which is fine. It's lovely. I just remember driving in the driveway and thinking, how can I get in the house and not see anyone? I just want to be with my family. And I guess they had all had the time together to, not to process it, but they'd all been there. And by the time I got there, obviously the police were there interviewing my mum and my brother and Alex. And I just felt... It's like I just wanted everyone to go away just so that I could be in my own house. I guess kind of felt like the odd one out. Your mental health did take a hit after that. Was that something that you had experienced before or were even expecting? Well, yes, because I knew it would happen because I was so, so close to Dad. Um, I had previously in 2010 lost a best friend to a car accident and... 
it kind of turned to shit. I drank lots. <laughs> I basically drank and ate, I think. And I just remember, oh, I got, like, I just got fat. And when dad died, I said to myself, um, you will not let yourself get any fatter. You didn't deal with it, losing Lucy very well. You can't do this again. Like, it doesn't help you. Um, but I'm pretty sure that's exactly what I did. But, yeah, <laughs> you do these things, I guess. You chose not to seek professional help, you know, in that time, that time immediately after you lost your dad. Why was that? Um, I just think I thought no one could help me and no one would understand how I felt and, like, how could they? You know, every everybody's circumstances and situations are different and everyone has an opinion and I never spoke about how I felt ever. And so there was a few times I had been to a counsellor and tried to speak to them about things, I guess, and I just thought they were crock of shit and they had no idea. So I just had this thought in my head, I guess, that no one could help me. Can you paint a picture of what those rough days were like for you and how you were coping and how it affected you? Some days I just couldn't even function. I couldn't even... Well, I just didn't want to be here. I was just like this, you know, I'm not happy. I don't, what the hell am I going to do with my life if I can't even enjoy the simple things in life? How, what is my life going to look like, I guess? Um, and there was a point there where I would just replay, I guess, what I saw afterwards through my head. And then I would, couldn't sleep because I would think, think things were happening that actually weren't. And just, I felt like after dad died, I felt like, righto, life's too short, get on with it get shit together like what do you want in life and for me I guess that was always from a young age I'd always looked after people's kids and I'd always wanted to have like a million kids and that was my thing so when dad died I was like righto well yep Alex is all right like (laughs) it's very blunt and harsh but you know yep Alex and I are good this is it this is what we'll do this is my life now so you guys got married in, in 2013 and you moved to Clover Downs, his family farm, and at the end of that year, and then you started to to start or try to start your family. What was that process like moving to Clover Downs, which was about two hours from your family home and moving to an area where you didn't know anybody and kind of starting afresh? What was that like? Um, that was really hard. I was very anti calling here home. I probably only just started to let it slip every now and then that I'm going home and by home I actually mean where I live now, not home Melrose, but I still, Melrose will always be my home and I'll probably never let that go, but that's okay. Um, it was it was really hard. Like I didn't know anyone at the time when we moved down here. So Alex was um, helping my dad on our farm and I lived up there and so he was he was living with me when he wasn't on his own farm working sort of thing so then we decided that we need obviously we would move back here to make life easier um so we rented a house while we built a house and then and we had willow in 2014 so we were in our new house then and I guess I just had a baby so I just got on with it like I didn't really Never had time to really put myself out there in the community, I guess. Um, I did attempt to play netball, <laughs> but broke my ankle five weeks in. So then that was the end of my social life, I guess. <laughs> and then had Willow, yeah. It kind of just 
all rolled into one. We were just here. This is what we were doing. And it wasn't probably until after the fires that I realised how not connected to the community and where I lived I really was, I guess, yeah. It's definitely something that a lot of our grazier community would relate to, that moving for love to a country area, you don't know anybody. Seven years later, what are some of the lessons you've learned about finding a tribe and, and kind of how, what would you share about some of those insights? You have to put yourself out there and it's up to you. Like Alex is just a farm. He could live on a farm and never see anyone and that's completely fine with him. And for me, it's not. I like, that's our biggest difference. I'm a social person. I like to be involved in my community. I like to get out, have fun. I still love the farm life, but I need something other than the farm. So I think I realised that we had the discussion numerous times. I'm like, if I'm going to be here, I need friends. Like, I can't just stay here and like just have you. That sounds horrible, but I think that's like the the longer we've been together, the more I have noticed that difference, I guess. Um, coming from Melrose, we I feel like you could walk down the street and anyone would say hello, even if you knew them or you didn't. Whereas here, no. Like I could smile, but everyone knew everyone, and, but I knew no one. And I didn't even think people knew who I was, whether they did or not, I don't know. But yeah, I just had to, as uncomfortable and awkward and shit as it was I had to put myself out there otherwise I was never going to be happy. Well in 2014 you did welcome your beautiful little girl Willow into the world what was that like for you? Um, probably the best thing ever uh, um, she was just so easy and she just did whatever whatever we were doing she did and yeah I just feel like she was a super easy baby whether she really was or not I don't know some babies come along and they really impact your life and they everything changes but she wasn't like that and I think that's why so it took us a while to get pregnant with Willow so once she was six months old I think it was we were like oh yeah this is good we'll do it we could do this again thinking it may take a while but (laughs) um it only took three months so Cash and Willow are quite close together but I love people say what's it like and it's like well I don't know any different and they do get along fairly well, which I think I'm very lucky, but they could change too. <laughs> Did you always want a big family? Yeah. I used to tell Alex that I wanted eight. I don't really want eight, but I told him that I wanted eight so that I could pretend I was compromising by coming down a few. And he, <laughs> he would say four and I would stick to my eight. <laughs> um, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, I come from a family of five kids, so I just think it's wicked. Yeah. What was it like growing up in in a big family like that? It was good. I I really liked it. You didn't like one. You had plenty of others to choose from. (laughs) I just love, yeah, I love it. I love it when we all get together. Mum has 10 grandkids, so when we all get together, it's pretty chaotic and it's just like you don't actually probably get to have a conversation, but. It's so nice. Nice to see all our kids playing together. You grew up uh, on a sheep and cropping property. What was life like for you guys? Busy. Busy. We're always doing something like tennis or um, netball or footy or helping with mum with catering or we're always doing something for someone in the community or something like that. Mum worked really hard. She worked as a nurse and a midwife, so she was busy doing that and dad was busy 
running the farm, I guess. But yeah, we all just did what we had to do. Whatever needed to be done, you go along and you help wash the dishes or you help shift the sheep or whatever. I wasn't a massive fan of washing the dishes. I was very much outside with that all the time if I could be. We're always doing whatever we could for, to help anyone really. You, That's what I remember anyway. <laughs> yeah, you, you're a real outdoors person. You love being outside. You love being with the livestock. Yeah. On November 25, 2015, your lives changed forever when a bushfire tore through your property and you were 37 weeks pregnant at the time with Willow just 19 months old. Can you walk us through what happened that day? Um, so we were in Adelaide, which is an hour south of where we are, um, at an obstetrician appointment. And we were coming home. We went to the nursery, bought a couple of mandarin and blueberry trees and just saw the smoke and tried to look it up on the CFS site, which there wasn't anything on there yet. And obviously the closer we got to home, the bigger the fire got. We knew the wind was going to change. So we knew that it would burn our property, I guess, but not to the degree that it did. It's tricky. Some days I remember lots of things and other days I'm just like, oh, I don't really know. Yeah, we just came home and uh, I shifted some sheep. Alex went to go, went down the road to tell his mum and dad to make sure they knew. Then he left with his dad and I just asked him, what I, like, what do I do? And he was like, oh, you'll be right. Just bring the dogs into the car shed or whatever and clean up a bit of shit. Just do whatever you can, stay in the house, rah, rah. So that was fine. Um, so he went off to a neighbouring neighbour's property to see where it was and what it was doing, I guess. And then I think I was outside getting the dogs. So I put them on the back of the ute and then I came back inside and there was no power. And I was like, oh, I do. And then I just kind of, I guess, like, that's probably when it hit me. It was like, well, what are you doing? Where are you? And I just assumed that I, well, I, Alex told me to stay, so I was staying. But then a part of me did think, actually, I don't want to be in the house, like, with Willow and Alex trying to save our house with us inside. But it was the not knowing where I would go that kind of, made me stay for so long probably so then I packed some clothes for Willow packed whatever still fit me um, and a few things that you know were precious to us and put them in the ute and still not knowing what the hell to do and then I had a friend from Melrose ring me and she's like what are you doing and I said oh I don't really know tell me what to do and she's like okay I'll ring you back I think she rang me back within a minute and she said, righto, get in your car, you need to go and go now. So that's what I did. And I was driving out the driveway when Alex had um, come back because <clears throat> the wind was going to change, so he needed to be here to try and save our house, I guess. Um, but he was running up the driveway and I was leaving and it was a, yep, you got to go and, like, hurry up, leave, see ya. And that was it. So um, I just drove north. And I drove to Owen, which the fire was going that way anyway. But I got to Owen and then I was like, okay, I'll just go to Balaclava. Drove to Balaclava and then I was like, what now? And then I had a friend who lives north of Balaclava ring me and say, well, what are you doing? I was like, oh, just, just sitting in Balaclava. And she said, I'll oh, come out here. So I went out there and stayed there for a little while. I couldn't obviously couldn't get a hold of Alex anymore. So I didn't really know what to do so I was just like well I'll drive up to Melrose I'll drop Willow off mum can look after her 
and then I'll work out the rest after that. And then I think it was about five or six o'clock. So the wind changed about three o'clock. So that's when it came through our place um, or maybe a bit before. So then I got a message at yeah five or six o'clock from a friend who had come down to help Alex fight the fire. And it was just a picture of our house. And we've got a big, massive lawn out the back of our house. And it was just black. Like, I didn't really realise green grass could burn like that. Um, and he just said, it just said, everything's gone but the house. And that was it. And then I tried to ring and tried to ring and couldn't get anyone. And it wasn't until, I think it was like 12 o'clock that night that I finally got onto Alex. Um, and, yeah, he just said, oh, everything's gone. Whatever, whatever stock's still alive needs to be put down and things like that so I stayed at mum's that night and then I came back down Thursday morning. It's a terrifying reality that so many Australians are are unfortunately all too familiar with after the summer of 2020 that we've had. What was it like driving back to the place that that next day? I don't I don't really know how to put it into words I know all I wanted to do I felt like the drive was the longest ever and it wasn't until we got between Balaclava and Owen, I guess. And then you started to see everything that was burnt. And it was just like, from there, it's probably 10 to 15 minutes to our house. But I swear that felt like an hour. The friend that rang me up and asked me what to do, Jess, she, her and her husband came down that day with me. So I met them in Georgetown, I think it was. And she jumped in with me and we drove down together because I didn't know if that actually let me back in because they were trying to keep people out of the fire area, obviously. Um, her husband works for the CFS, so he was there, and it was fine. It wasn't an issue, because obviously, showed him my driver's license, I'm from here. That was fine. But yeah, it just felt like forever to get back here. And then I remember turning up the driveway, and I still see it some days, just the dead cows out the front paddock, like just like, well, big mounds they were. Um, we only had about 40 cows, but they all had names. And I just remember turning up the driveway and being like, oh, yep, there's Brandy and Bubblegum. And, like, I could just keep who they were. So that wasn't, yeah, obviously overly nice. Oh, it was horrible. It was just, yeah, not nice. I, I can't comprehend the, the level of loss and devastation. I think it, it's very difficult to understand unless you've been there. And then three weeks later, you were due to have a baby, which is a, a huge transition in itself. You know, how did yeah. you navigate that? Oh, again, you don't have a choice. It's just what has to happen. Um, I honestly don't know. I remember the obstetrician saying, like, can you go home? Can you go somewhere else? Can you? And I was just like, well, that's our home. Where else am I going to go? Like, you know, we'll just deal with it. And I guess that's what we did, but... Yeah, it wasn't overly enjoyable, but yeah. So you welcomed baby Cash, your son, into the world. What was that first six months like? That's a very good question. There's a lot of it I don't remember. It wasn't It wasn't like Willie. It's not that he wasn't, pardon me, he was still a good baby, but I just felt sorry for him. From being, especially at Willow as well, like, we were forever outside and then I couldn't even let her go outside anymore and me not being able to go outside anymore. It's just, we were just trapped inside with just dust around us. We'll be back with more of George's story in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
Seed Terminator helped Grazy Her bring you this story as they truly get what this is all about, connection and innovation. A homegrown South Australian business with roots on Kangaroo Island, Seed Terminator's ethos revolves around technology rooted in a love for the land and respect for those who nurture it. Their mission is to safeguard our farms for future generations while making the biggest possible difference to the world of food production. They do this by producing groundbreaking ag tech that offers farmers an economic, sustainable, foolproof way to banish weeds for good. The Terminator is a simple attachment to the rear of the combine and uses steel to crush, shear, impact and grind the weed-laden chaff material, killing 99% of weeds non-chemically. To find out more, head to seedterminator.com. It's funny, people are like, oh, what was it like when you had two and you had two so close together? And I was just like, I don't know. Like, I actually don't remember. And I often say, um, like, you know, if you could have things the way you wanted to have them, what would have it been like to have two so close together without the fire? But I don't know. It could have been exactly the same. I could feel exactly the same in not remembering things, but to me I feel like it was my head was so busy with post-fire stuff that maybe that's why I don't remember it's it's really tricky well you were diagnosed with depression anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome two years after the fire what was that like getting that diagnosis (laughs) um I think I was like, yeah, okay, so that's what's wrong with me. That probably sounds stupid, but I knew how shit I felt. And was it, did I make myself this way or is it okay that I'm this way? Was it almost a relief in a way to have a label to stick on it so that you, it wasn't that you were, you know, going mad per se? Yeah, Yeah. wasn't that I was fucking everything up, it was, <clears throat> that I had been through things and that they that they do impact you and you sometimes you have no control over no matter how shit or how big a hole I fall into I can still find positives but it's just really tricky I don't like that <laughs> some people see me as a unhappy grumpy negative can't see the good in anything person because that really isn't me you've just caught me on a shit day. Like everyone has shit days, whether they are diagnosed with something or not. Like far out, Cash woke up this morning and I was just like, what is wrong with you? And then I was like, oh, hold on. I had a really shit day yesterday. That's okay. You're allowed to be grumpy. Go for it. You know, it's just part of life. You can't judge someone on meeting them on a crappy day. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone makes poor choices. So what was the driver for you seeking help and, and how did it change your life? I just became a person I really didn't like. My kids deserve better. Like I didn't, I got to the point where I wasn't, wasn't happy with anything and it, I have things to be happy for. Like um, we're extremely lucky to still have our house. We're extremely lucky to still have our family, to have two kids like, so lucky and I I am so grateful for what I have but the person I was didn't show that and I just 
you know, I couldn't see the good shit in a day. I just was always unhappy. I don't know what made me realize that no one could fix how I felt apart from myself. So I had to get past the thoughts that no one could help me and maybe see if they could, I guess. Yeah. And did it help? Were you helped? Yep. Yes, definitely. Yep. It is the most, or it's just the best thing that I did for myself. Yeah. It really was the best thing for me. Like I had always wanted to be um, a mum of many kids and out on the farm, happy, enjoying everything. And I just didn't, I just lost that. I just became such a unhappy person. So yeah, I had to do something. You've tried a couple of different avenues of help and you still see a psychologist today. Do you have some insight into how important it is to keep going till you find someone who you click with? Yep. So freaking important and so hard to do though. So that my first um, psychologist that I saw, she was really good for a certain period of time. Like she, she helped me through a lot of things, but then it got to the point of she didn't really understand farming life and she would say, Oh, you need to try and implement this. And I'm like, that's fine for a city person that you're just like, yeah, no, no. Like you may know what you're talking about, but that's not for me and that's okay. And so I just got to the point where I was like, I would go, go to an appointment and I'd come home and I'm like, okay, I'm not getting what I need from this appointment anymore. So I stopped seeing her. Um, and I was okay for a while and then I guess I went backwards. And so then I was like, righto, I need to, I still need to, still need help. So I went back and I looked into someone who was more suited to me. So I looked at what um, their background was and found a lady who knows a bit about farming and had worked with rural people. And she's really good. I still see her and, the day of going to your appointment, I swear you just feel so, it's like, oh, fuck, what are they going to say today? What are they going to ask me today? I don't want to talk about that. I hope they don't ask me that. Like, but to go to someone who you can trust and who is on the, the same page makes all the difference. Well, you do, or well, you have in the past and you still do share about your mental health journey online through Instagram and your blog. What has the response been like? to that over the years um really good mostly really good some negativity and i think when i myself am not in a good place that negativity really um impacts me and has like when i started my page i was in a really good headspace and i knew that what i was saying was okay then it's the people that you don't even know that message you um, and just, you know, say, thanks for being so open. I'm glad uh, it makes it easier for me that I know I'm not the only one who struggles or feels like this or um, things like that. And to know that there's people who have never seeked help, but then have had the courage to seek help just because some random has spoken about how they feel and that they are actually normal with the feelings that they feel, I guess. Yeah. 
It is about normalising and, and uh, kind of taking that stigma down around the taboo of talking about our feelings, particularly in the bush. I think it's so important. Do you feel like you have a thicker skin now when it comes to negativity online? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Not always. Yeah, I do. Um, but I'm still human. I still have feelings. Like I still, some days I'm just like, yeah, whatever. That's fine. I shared this. Um, it's coming from a good place. Like I've shared this to try and help myself and to help other people who want to read it and who want help and to know they're not alone. If you don't like it, just go away. Like you're not helping anyone. Does it make you feel like a better person for being negative and to, for tearing someone else down? Because if it does, that's not cool. But yeah. Well, how do you manage your wellbeing today? Some days really well, other days not so much. Um, I, I try, I've never been one to put myself first ever. I've always <laughs> will help anyone else before I help myself. But I think I've learnt over time that that doesn't help me. Like I can't be a good mum to my kids if I am not looking after myself. So... Um, I just try and make make time for myself. It used to be I'd just go down the paddock and um, burn some burn some stumps and burn some burnt trees or take the swag on the back of the ute and just have a put the kids to bed and then just go sleep out in the paddock just to I don't even know, just to shut off, just to actually try and enjoy the simple things like I, yeah, I love campfires and sitting around a campfire and camping and things like that, which I don't do much of anymore. So that was my, oh, well, chuck the swag on the back of the ute, drive down the paddock and sit out there, whatever, wake up, go get, like, start again the next day. Um, and I think, like, getting back and playing netball after I had cash was a really good thing. It was really, really hard. That's the, that's how I got to know people though. That's how I got into the community. Yes, it was really hard, but if I wanted to meet people, I'm not going to meet them at home. So I had to put myself out there and I am really glad I did it, even though oh, my anxiety was ridiculous. Getting the, both the kids ready and going and hoping that they wouldn't cry on the sidelines while I played an hour of netball just it seemed ridiculous now I'm like why on earth did I put all that extra pressure on myself when I felt so shit but it's paid off it has been such a wild ride for you a, a roller coaster over the last 10 years what does the future look like for Georgia <laughs> um who knows really <laughs> grow this baby I guess keep working on that um, next year, Willow will be in year one and Cash will be starting school. So to actually kind of go back to just having one at home will be really interesting. I don't know how, yeah, how I'll go or what it'll be like, but obviously we'll just continue to grow our stud and hopefully keep producing, um, good rams that everyone wants to buy and, no doubt we'll add a few more pets to the list and yeah, just, 
I guess next year will just be farm life, raising a baby, and then who knows what will be after that. Georgia, it's been so special to spend this time with you and thank you so much for being so raw and vulnerable. It's been a real privilege to hear your story. Thank you so much for having me. I think you'll agree with me when I say how inspired I was yarning with Georgia. Her resilience, I know, will resonate so much with our Grazy Her community. And it's thanks to you for tuning into this episode of Life on the Land, real conversations with regional and rural women. We'll pop a link to George's Instagram account and blog in our show notes so you can continue to follow along the journey of this amazing mum and producer. This is our fourth episode in an eight-week series where we celebrate all things regional and rural women. As an independent podcast, we'd bloody love it if you could continue to support us by spreading the Grazy Her word and sharing this episode with your friends and family. Let us know how you're listening in by screenshotting your app or send us a photo for where you're tuning in. It honestly thrills us to see just how diverse the landscapes are that our community lives and thrives in. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company. Mm-hmm.